St. Augustine's work entitled The Confessions continues to be one of the most significant semi-autobiographical works ever written from a Christian perspective. I don't believe that's an overstatement. This is due in large part to Augustine's high view of God, his genuinely humble view of himself, and his passion to ignite the church's love for God for her edification. In it, Augustine gave us quotes like this. Great are you, O Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense and your wisdom beyond reckoning. And so we humans who are a due part of your creation long to praise you. We who carry our mortality about with us carry the evidence of our sin and with it the proof that you thwart the proud. Yet these humans, a due part of your creation as they are, still do long to praise you. You stir us so that praising you may bring us joy, because you have made us and drawn us to yourself, and our hearts will not find rest until they find rest in you. In our day, we need more leaders like this. We need more people who exalt the glory of God, are zealous to exhort others to do the same, and who are careful to exhibit themselves as one in need of his grace daily. I appreciate the attention that we give to some of these things as we gather together Sunday after Sunday by means of prayer. We have a segment of prayer specifically designed to give praise to our God, to call upon him by name, to especially call out his inherent goodness. We have a segment where we specifically confess our shortcomings and failures, acknowledging our grace, the need for grace, and understanding his pardon already wrought in Christ. This practice is probably one of the most helpful exercises for the spiritual health of our community as a family of believers. We praise Him together, we confess together, we do this regularly, and on doing so are consistently drawn back to the center of our common faith in Christ. Well, the people of God in antiquity had a similar practice. Much of the Psalter can be viewed in this light. This morning we're going to examine a passage in the Psalter that can be viewed as an Old Testament confession. St. Asaph. It was written by him as an exhortation to the people of God by means of a confession of his own weaknesses, as well as confession of the inherent goodness of God, a goodness that we all need to treasure. Turn with me, if you have it, to the Confessions of St. Asaph, Psalm 73. And in it we'll see Asaph's journey through feelings of envy over the prosperity of the wicked to remembering that God alone is our greatest good. He communicates this through a series of five confessions, and I'll share them with you in just a moment. I do want to read all of Psalm 73 in your hearing list so that you have it in your mind as we go through. Psalm 73. It's right after Psalm 72. <laughs> Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, and the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. 
Therefore, his people return to this place, and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for this day again, and we thank you for this time we have around your word. We pray that you would give us clarity of mind as we think through this passage, that you would open our hearts, that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Again, in this song, we will see five confessions of St. Asaph. For those who'd like to take notes, I'll read them now and I'll repeat them again as we go through. Five confessions of St. Asaph. The first is a general confession. He says that God does the greatest good to his people. God does the greatest good to his people. The second is one that we sometimes believe to be true. The wicked have the greatest life now. The wicked have the greatest life now. The third is the reality. God is the wicked's greatest enemy. God is the wicked's greatest enemy. The fourth confession is like it. Envy can be my greatest folly. Envy can be my greatest folly. And the fifth confession is perhaps his best. And the conclusion to which all of us point, God is my greatest good. God is my greatest good. So I'm going to take a look together at Asaph's first confession. God does the greatest good to his people. Look again at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And it surely indicates that this is a matter of fact in Asaph's mind. Some commentators indicate that this may have been an early proverbial saying. In other words, this was something in the common vernacular of the believer in this day. It would be akin to, we say sometimes God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, right? This would have been a proverbial saying in their day. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now this is Hebrew poetry, and so Hebrew poetry has certain characteristics. I'll kind of touch on those as we go through 
This first verse, each verse is really considered what's called a poetic line, and so there are certain features of it. The first half of this poetic line gives us the idea, the big idea. God is good. That's what he's talking about here. All believers everywhere can attest to this fact. All believers everywhere will give a hearty amen. All will confess the saying, God is good. God is good to his people. He is good to Israel. Yes, he is good to the church. This verse is also an illustration of a feature in Hebrew poetry called synonymous parallelism. The first half of the verse of the line gives us the big idea. The second half explains something about the first. In other words, he says God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's not talking about two separate groups. He's talking about the same group of people Israel is, those who are pure in heart. That's what he's saying. That's what he's communicating. And this purity of heart is not an absolute purity. It really has more to do with their relationship with God. They are the people of God. They have the commandments. They have the promises. They have the history with God. Above all other men, they are blessed of the Lord. It is their relationship with Him, their connection to Him, that gives them the designation as those who are pure in heart. Kind of this point. As for them, so for the church, we are the people of God today. We have the testimony of the people of God who have gone before us. We have the testimony of Jesus Himself. We have the Word of God completed. We have the Gospel. We have the salvation that comes through hearing the Word of God. We have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the testimony of the universal church. We are the pure in heart of our day. Surely God has been good to us. Again, this is a proverbial saying, God is good to his people. Usually when we say that he is good, what we mean is that he does good to his people. He brings good things. He brings good circumstances. He is good to us. Asaph and the people of God in his day believe that. We believe that, and we would confess the same. But if that is true, then why do the wicked prosper in this life? That brings us to the second of Asaph's confessions. The wicked have the greatest life now. The wicked have the greatest life now. That's going to take us from verse 2 all the way through 16. He says that the wicked have the greatest life now. At least that's sometimes what it seems like. We all have or do think that from time to time. Asaph was just being honest enough to admit it. Verses 2 and 3, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says in verse 2 to his brethren, Guys, I almost messed up big time. My feet came close to stumbling, my steps were pulled out from under me. I lost my footing and nearly came crashing down. When he talks about slipping here, he's talking about completely falling away. He says, I almost completely fell away. Asaph says, I'm hanging on for dear life here. But what was it that shook him? Verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What shook him was his observation that these arrogant, these wicked people apparently had a prosperous life. In the following verses, he's going to explain what he means by the fact that they were prospering and also what he means by the fact that they were arrogant or wicked. But the point is that these arrogant or wicked individuals prospering before his eyes caused Asaph to lose his spiritual footing. He's been living under the assumption that verse 1 is true. He's been standing on the solid ground of this truth for his whole life, that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
That proverbial saying governed his whole outlook on the relationship between God and humanity. God bestows good things on the upright to those who are pure in heart. Certainly he doesn't give good things to those who are wicked. That just doesn't make any sense in Asaph's mind. But that's what he sees when he looks around. He sees these arrogant, wicked people prospering in their wickedness, and he simply cannot believe it. His faith in this truth that God has given to his people because a pure in heart is completely shaken. But it's more than that. It's more than that his faith is shaken. It's more than that his faith in this truth is being shaken. Asaph is beginning to spiral down into a spiritual abyss. Not only does he see something different than what he believed to be true, but he's also beginning to envy the wicked on account of it. See the progression there? The moment we lose sight of the truth of God, the moment we lose faith in the promises of God, what inevitably follows is a need to fill the vacuum of that gaze. It's a need to fill the vacuum of that attention that we've been giving the truths and the promises of God, and it will always be filled with the temptation to flirt with, indulge in, gaze long at, and love wickedness. That's the only logical step. And as we begin down that spiral, sin will always take us further than we want to go, as someone said, keep us longer than we want to stay, and cost us more than we want to go. But what does he see as he's thrust down this spiral of indulging in the envy of the wicked? You can picture Asaph sitting back and watching these arrogant ones, these wicked ones and their wickedness with disgust, but also seething with envy. Why does he think the wicked have the greatest life now? Six things he observes about the wicked. First, in verse 4, they seem to have no want in their prosperity, no lack. Verse 4, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Again, Hebrew is a very concrete language. This is a poetic line. The second half informs the first. What does he mean that there's no pain in their death? Does he mean that they're immune to pain in death? Certainly not. The idea is that there's no pain in death because they seem to have been satisfied with life. They're completely and totally satisfied with life. When he says that they are fat, what he means is that when they die, their bodies are plump and round. Because they've been completely satisfied with all that life has given them. And so they need nothing else. He sees these wicked ones just breathing their last breath, completely and totally satisfied with their life. He's thinking, how in the world is that possible? How is that so? Second, they believe, these wicked ones believe that they have no human equal in their prosperity. That's verses 5 and 6. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. He says they don't face the same kind of trouble as us normal folks. That tends to change their outlook on life. Listen to the imagery of the poetic text. He says that pride is their necklace. Pride is their necklace precisely because they have it good, other people don't, and they know it. They know it, they make it known to other people, and usually they want you to uh, kind of bow down before them because they have it good. In my line of work, I see people almost daily who believe that the world owes them something simply because they have a lot of money in their bank account. I work at a bank. And I always inevitably get that customer that comes in and they want something, probably something completely outrageous and something that no one else in the bank or the world gets. But they come in and they start out with something like, oh, well, I've been, a, I've been banking with this customer for, with this uh, bank for a long time. 
And then usually they get around with saying, hey, I have a lot of money. They just kind of slide that one in, you know, because that's supposed to make a difference. And when you don't do what they want, the second half of that poetic line informs the first. Pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. They become violent and seek to take what they want by any means necessary, whether through verbal or physical assault. This leads us to the third observation. The wicked seem to have no boundaries in their prosperity. Verse 7. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riots. The pride of having it all, the pride of knowing that you have more than others, the proud feeling of looking down upon others in their relative poverty, even the pride that leads to a violent demand of whatever they want, feeds their lust to the degree that there's nothing they wouldn't seek. There's nothing they would not do. Whatever their heart or mind conceives of, that is what they pursue. That's what it is envisioned here. He talks about their eyes bulging from fatness. Again, this is just um, kind of a a way of communicating through uh, through imagery. That's what poetry does. And what he's getting at here is the second part of that line that the imagination of their heart runs riot. Whatever they see, whatever they conceive of, whatever they think of, that's what they end up wanting to do. That's what they want to pursue. And there doesn't seem to be any boundary to their pursuit of these things. The primary reference for Asaph are those who are materially wealthy. He's looking at those who are materially wealthy and their wealth, pursuing whatever they want. See a car you want, go get it. See a house, go get it. A small business you like, buy it from the owner. Money is no object. Won't take no for an answer. Talk to people however you want to get what you want from them because you believe you have the money and the resources to get it. And everyone needs to bow down before that. Perhaps we can also see this attitude of some of the moral revolutionists of our day. Those who are leading the moral revolution the list of letters being added to the sexual revolution is astounding. We're now up to LGBTKIAPK. And they usually put like a little etc. at the end. I'm not making that up. Let's not even begin to talk about the number of preferred gender pronouns that are being offered to refer to those who fall into some of these categories. Those who are out front leading this charge seem to be profiting from its advance, and they're having their way. Whatever they want, whatever they will, they do it, they pursue it, and everyone else must consent to it. Fourth observation, they have no compassion in their prosperity. Verse 8, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. This observation, again, follows from what preceded. There's nothing to restrain their wickedness, nothing to restrain their pride. They now sit and mock those who are oppressed, those who are downtrodden. They ridicule. They may say to those who are beneath them, they're just lazy. They don't work hard enough. They're just not good enough. They really can't be that bad for them, right? Maybe they just deserve it. Maybe true that those people, whoever those people are, are lazy and not hard workers. But the wicked have no legitimate knowledge of the character of those people. They simply assume these things because their pride and prosperity has given them that license. Fifth, they have no God, honor, and humility in their prosperity. Verses 9 through 11. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place. Waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Again, as their thoughts of themselves continue to swell, 
They advance over their advantage over their fellow man continues to advance. Their ability to procure whatever their heart desires increases. Their disdain for heaven and God above also increases. Again, they set their mouth against the heaven. Their tongue parades throughout the earth. They are speaking their wickedness against heaven, against God above. Verse 11 fills us in on what they're saying. How does God know and is their knowledge with the Most High? Now, these are not true believers. These are those who make a mockery of God, of the idea of God, of the truth of God, in particular of the truth of the God of the Bible. He is the Most High. But for them, he knows nothing. He sees nothing. He can do nothing to them. He cannot touch them. And again, as it says in verse 9, they spread their disdain for God throughout the whole earth. These are missionaries for atheism. Perhaps they don't have a full-fledged view of of the theology of atheism as we know it in our apologetics texts and in their hearts. They disdain and they mock the reality of God. They don't need him. They're captains of their own ship. They control their own destiny. At least that's how they feel. Verse 10, it says, their own people, their own atheistic disciples drink up this theology deeply. They indulge in it. They revel in it, and they end up propagating it themselves. Six, verse 12, they have no limits in their prosperity. Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. This observation is Asaph at the height of his frustration, the height of his bitterness, the height of his envy, as he's looking out at the prosperity of the wicked, they really have their greatest life now. They seem to be getting what they want, whatever it is they want, and they have no problems getting it, and they keep on increasing in their wealth. You ever sit back sometimes and think, why does such and such a person have to have that? Why do these immoral movie stars get to have all that money? I can certainly do better with it, right? I'd give more to the church. I'd give more to charity. I'd help more people if I had that. Why does that abusive athlete get to have a Nike deal, that fancy car? Why does my pagan boss have a bigger paycheck than me? Why does my non-Christian neighbor get to take vacations around the world while I'm stuck going camping in my backyard? I like camping. Camping is nice. I'm not down in camping, bro. Why does this person get to go through life without a chronic health issue? Or the illness that plagues me? Why are they more alike than everyone else? Why are they further advanced in their career? Why do they get to be raised by both parents and I only had one? Why do they get to have their loved ones still around when mine is gone? And the list goes on and on. The wicked seem to have their greatest life now. But what about me, Asaph says? What about me? Where's my good luck? Look at verses 13 through 16. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I would speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I commented to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Asaph began the psalm with a surely. He was sure, he was certain that this saying was right. God is good to Israel, but those who are pure in heart. After he's taken some time to look around and think about it and reflect on what he sees in reality, now he's not so sure about that first statement. Now he seems sure about something else. When I look at my life, Asaph said, I've kept my heart pure, but God has not been good to me. This is surely not the best life now. In vain I have kept my heart pure. Again, this is a poetic line. The first phrase relates to the second. In vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. 
I have been trying to do what was right. I have been striving for what is good. I have been trying to do the right thing before God. Asaph says, I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm a worship leader in the sanctuary of God. I'm an Israelite, one who is pure in heart. But I don't feel that God has been good to me. I just don't see it. I've been good for nothing. For no reason at all. Let me ask you before we go further. Have you kept your heart pure? Have you washed your hands in innocence? One of the main arguments that men have against the existence of God, and one of the main complaints that we have who believe in God, is that sometimes he's just not good and we deserve so much better. That's really what's going on in our hearts when we complain about what's happening in life, doesn't it? Sometimes we think without admitting it that we just deserve so much better in life than we're getting right now. But do we? This may be one of the more important side points of the text. We often seek for good and often complain and grow bitter or angry when we do not receive what we believe are good things. It's usually because we think that we are good people, but the reality is that we're just, we're not good people. There's only been one legitimately good man, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our minds, with our lips, in our hearts, with our hands, we do not do good because there isn't always good in our hearts. But thankfully, again, this is poetry that Asaph is writing. He's using this medium, this poetic medium to convey meaning. So when he says the pure in heart, when he refers to Israel as a pure in heart, he's not talking again about everyone being absolutely pure. And we know that that is true for us. That we're not absolutely pure in heart. But that that's okay. Because the one who is pure in heart has pardoned us from all of us. And that we can rejoice. And as we come before God and we do make our complaints before God, we know that just as Asaph, we won't be rejected. When we come before God honestly seeking help, seeking wisdom, confessing before him, we know that we won't be rejected, but that we'll be accepted because we are in the beloved one, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has done all good. Back to our text, Asaph says, again, when I look at my life, I kept my heart pure, but God is simply not good to me. Knowing all of these things doesn't make it feel any different. Sometimes we still feel awful about it, about life, right? He says, moreover, I've washed my hands in innocence, but I'm disciplined all the time. Verse 14, for I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. The strickening in the first half of the line is the chastening of the second. And the all day long is just like it every morning. I try to do what is right, he's saying, but by implication, whenever I mess up, all I get is chastening. And this happens every single day to me. That's how he feels about it. You ever go through one of those seasons in life? Where you feel as though you're trying to do right, and you slip up one time, and you feel like God is just all over you, right? He's just after you. Like, he can't get right. You, you, you go through life, and you try to do what's right, you try to do what's good, but then something happens. Maybe you mess up one time, and you feel like it's just one bad thing after another. Like, when you try to go out into the, into the ocean, and you get hit by one wave, and you feel like you're doing okay after that, but then you get another one right in the face, and then you turn around, and you get another one at the back, back of your legs, and you kind of fall over, and you're stumbling about, right? That's how life feels sometimes. Asaph says, that's where I am. I feel like I just can't get right. Like, everywhere I turn, I'm getting battered, and I know that this is from the hand of God. I know that he's chasing me. I know that he's coming after me. That's how he feels. 
kept my heart pure, washed my hands in innocence, of seeking to do what's right, yet all I get is grief. The wicked have the best life now. I do. Well, he has a moment of sanity in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He says, I know this is crazy talk. I know these things are not really true. I know that God is good to his people. I know that sometimes God does chasten his people and that he's not doing so out of a vengeful heart, but that he's doing so because he loves us and he wants to correct us. I know that sometimes God brings difficulty into our lives, James 1, in order to purify us, in order to burn off the impurities that um, sometimes we walk about with, in order to help us to shed those earthly treasures that we learned about earlier today and to remember where our treasure ought to be. I know that God does that. But again, when I look around verse 16, this whole thing is still troublesome in my sight. It still burdens my heart. Well, how does he turn this whole thing around? How does he come from out of this pit of despair that he's in? Confession number three, God is the wicked's greatest enemy. Verses 17 through 20. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you do set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. This verse is clearly the turning point in Asaph's thinking. As he's confessing the season of his life where he came close to slipping or stumbling, he remembers the point when his thinking was turned around, and that's when he came to the sanctuary of God. Why is fellowship so important? Why is this gathering together of believers so important, so necessary for the life of the faithful? It's for this reason. Because in the gathering together of believers, we're brought out of the fog, the stupor that we sometimes encounter as we linger long in this world. As we are enveloped by the life, breath, lust, pleasures, pains, thoughts, and attitudes of the world, the fellowship of believers is the one safe haven that God has given us. The one refuge in this world. Hebrews 10, 23-25, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. That's what we do. That's what we ought to do as we come together. That's what Asaph needed. The issue is not about a loss of salvation, but rather a loss of encouragement. Asaph needed encouragement to come out of the stupor, out of this downward spiral of spiritual depression that he entered as he began to envy the wicked. The only place he was able to find this was in the sanctuary. It was in the presence of God and in the company of his people that Asaph was reminded of the truth. That's when we're reminded from the Word of God, from our song, from our, our corporate confession and prayer together, our corporate pray, praising of God together, our corporate petitions together, our corporate feasting around the Word of God. This is when we're reminded that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not after you. God is not, does not hate you when you do what is wrong. God has nothing but love for you in Christ. We're reminded again that those whom he loves, he does chasten, and that that is a good thing. It is good to be disciplined of the Lord. And if you don't receive discipline as a believer, then you're not one of his. 
in the presence of God and of his people, as Asaph points out in verses 18 through 20, that we're reminded that vengeance is the Lord's. And that vengeance is what God has in store for the wicked. Though they seem to be prospering today, they are indeed on a slippery slope. And once the patience of God is up, he will indeed be aroused to, as it says in verse 19, sweep them away with sudden terrors and despise their form. The judgment of God is coming to the wicked. Do not envy them. I love the imagery that Jonathan Edwards put forth when he talked about the wicked and on uh, the, the slippery slope, as it were, that the wicked were standing on. He envisioned the wicked as hanging over the fires of God's judgment by a thin thread. God is holding them just like this, by a thin thread, a very thin thread. And it's only the patience of God and the grace of God that keeps them from falling at any moment. We dare not envy them. We learn about these things, we hear about these things, we're reminded of these truths. The day of judgment is coming for the wicked as we gather together. I love this quote from James Montgomery Boyce as he's talking about the importance of the gathering as he's looking at this verse, this passage. He says, this is kind of a long quote, but bear with me. He says, but what is the connection between this important perception and the psalmist entering into the sanctuary? He says, John Calvin thought that the entering the sanctuary meant studying the law of God that was kept there, that is, entering into Bible doctrines. Another teacher has suggested that Asaph saw the altar upon which the fire was burning, where the animals, or where the offerings for sin were consumed. He says the death of the sacrificial animal symbolized death as the end result of sin, and the fire could have reminded Asaph of this judgment. He says, I think that each of those views touches on the answer, but the whole answer, in my opinion, is that the, in the sanctuary, Asaph came to see everything from God's perspective rather than his own limited and sinful worldview. That is, he came to see the lives of the wicked and also his own life from the perspective of eternity. He experienced a paradigm shift. He says, in an excellent contemporary study of the psalm, Roy Clements, pastor of the Eden Baptist Church in Cambridge, England, links this new perspective to worship, saying that worship puts God at the center of our vision. He says it is vitally important because it is only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. And sometimes the best and clearest place for us to see things as they really are is in the company of God's people and before his word. God is the wicked's greatest enemy. That brings us to confession number four, envy and be my greatest following. The lights have just come back on for Asaph. His mind has once again been illuminated. Looking back on this stupor, the spiritual slumber of his, the spiritually destructive downward spiral into envy over the wicked was brought to a halt when it was made to gaze long at the goodness of God in the sanctuary among his people. And what does he think about himself now? Verses 21 and 22. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before him. If pride is a necklace for the wicked, then humility ought to be a necklace that the godly wear. One of the hallmarks of humility is a willingness to confess sin, to confess our shortcomings to one another. That is what makes these confessions so profound, Asaph's openness and honesty to his brethren about his own sin. That is what makes our own confession so profound to one another. 
We are charged to confess our sins to one another in Galatians chapter 6. When we do that, it brings great encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are also probably struggling with the same things. And it gives us an opportunity to build into one another's lives and to remind one another of these same truths that ASAP is going through. That he's being reminded of. When I was bitter and pierced, when I was indulging in envy, I was like a senseless and ignorant beast before you. Envy makes me like a brute beast. He says, I was a fool. I was a fool to look at them. I was a fool to envy them. So too are we fools when we allow ourselves to look upon someone else with envy, when we have no idea where they came from or where they're going, what their end is going to be. I struggle with this sometimes when I am. I'm out running. I think I mentioned to you guys before that I'm trying to do this running thing. And um, I, I, I feel like I look like I'm about to die every time I run. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm about to die every time I run. So I've told people this before, but if you ever see me out on the road running, it's okay just driving by. You may want to stop and offer me water or CPR. I'm going to make it through, I promise. But I struggle sometimes when I'm running because I see people who are running on the same path as me and they just kind of like bolt past me. And it's even worse, and this is just my, my own thought, and i got to get over this. It's even worse when the person's older than me, and they're clearly older than me, and they're like booking it down the path. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on here, right? But, uh, you know, the Lord reminded me that, um, you know, sometimes people are just on a different training route. Sometimes and maybe they are just stronger, and that's okay. You know, maybe they're on a different training regimen. They're running, and you know they've got their plan, and they're working out their plan. Or maybe they're doing it wrong. I don't know. You know, sometimes I'll get down the path and I'll see the same person sitting on the side of the road, like they're about to die, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's absolutely awful. I'm just being honest confessions, right? That's what we're doing this morning. We're confessing. But sometimes they're just on a different training regimen. And sometimes they're doing it wrong. But we don't know. We don't have any idea. And we look at them and we're tempted to envy them. And that's just absolutely foolish. And that's what Asaph is saying. It's foolish to look at someone else and to desire what they have because you don't know where they've been and you don't know what's going to result from what they're pursuing. Asaph says, when, I'm, when I came to my senses, I realized that they were on a path that I just did not want to follow. Again, we're looking at ASAS 5, confessions. Confession number one, God does the greatest good to his people. Number two, the wicked have the greatest life now. Number three, God is the wicked's greatest enemy. Number four, enemy can be my greatest folly. Number five, God is always my greatest good. God is always my greatest good. I mentioned earlier that typically when we say that God is good, what we mean is that he does good. The focus is often on how he provides good things or good circumstances, but is that the sum total of what it means that God is good? Why do we say that God is our greatest good? Look again at verses 23 through 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. You have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel. You will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 23, both ESV and NASB translate the first word, nevertheless. That really helps to capture the force of what he's saying. I was a senseless and ignorant beast, a mindless, brooding animal, as I sat and began to envy the wicked. There's nothing redeemable about their life. 
They're going to face the judgment of God, and yet I indulge in envy over them. Nevertheless, I am with you. Though I was a fool, I am still with God. But look at the second half of that verse. Again, you have taken hold of my right hand. I am with you precisely because you have taken hold of my right hand. This point. Earlier, Asaph said, I almost slipped. Now we're cute as to why he did not fully fall away. God upholds his own. He keeps us by his strength. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. God holds us by his almighty hand, thus we shall never fall away. Don't miss this. God actually proves his goodness to Asaph in this moment and that he doesn't allow him to utterly fall away. Even though he was like a senseless and ignorant beast before him, complaining and whining and envying the wicked. God is a keeper. And he keeps us from utterly falling away. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The hand of God, the presence of God, keeps us forever. The writer of Hebrews says that this is the quality of salvation that we have in Jesus. Hebrews 5, 9, He, Jesus, became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Hebrews 7, 25, He, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to him, to God through him. And he always lives to make intercession for them. The believer knows the goodness of God and his ability to keep us from falling away. He holds us in his almighty hand even when we stumble. Even when we stumble, even when we're like that ignorant, senseless beast before God. He keeps us, he holds us in his hand. Moreover, look at verse 24. With your counsel, you will guide me, and after we receive me to glory, not only does he keep us today, but he also guarantees our final redemption tomorrow. Asaph says that it is the counsel of the Lord that guides us, and because his counsel guides us, he will, he will direct and guide us through life, and afterward, he will necessarily receive us to glory. That is the end of the believer, that we will be with God in glory. Because he holds us, because he keeps us. Russell Moore of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission recently wrote an article recalling a conversation he had with an ex-psychic who by his own admission had deceived people for years for the sake of gain. This, this gentleman that he interviewed concluded that most people don't want global fame or a penthouse park in Park Avenue, but rather a basic sense of security, a reassurance that everything was going to be all right. And as he deceived people, that's what he tried to give them. He tried to give them this sense of security by the things that he said to them. But you really can get no greater sense of security in any other place. You can't get a sense of security in someone's proclamation to you, a human being. You can't get a sense of security in a bank account because it can be washed away. You can't get a sense of security in a job. You can't get a sense of security in health. All of these things are like a vapor. The only security that we have is in God through Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Because He alone is our keeper. He alone is the one who preserves our life. 
we will be received in glory because God has given us a living hope, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We say that God is our greatest good because he is our keeper. We also say that God is our greatest good because he is our treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on the earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my fortune forever. By using the language of heaven and earth, Asaph means to signify the totality of creation. To him, there's nothing in the created cosmos besides God. God is the greatest treasure. He is the greatest desire. He is the most desirable thing. Even when it comes to the strength of his own life, again, Asaph knows that his strength will fail him. My heart and my flesh may fail. My own ability to bear up on the trial will fail. I will reach the end of my rope. My body will eventually fail. If the Lord tarries, we will all die. But... God, but God is the strength of my heart and my fortune forever. God is the strength of my heart. He is the strength of my inmost being. He is the one who keeps my soul alive. Without him, apart from him, I would cease to exist. But because of him and in him, I know that I have one. He's my fortune forever, my greatest treasure. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is no greater good than the one who is your keeper, the one who preserves your faith, the one who guarantees your life, the one who has given you the greatest treasure that there is in all of existence, namely himself? Do you believe that? Again, Augustine said, Turn us toward yourself, O God of hosts. Show us your face, and we shall be saved. For whatsoever a human soul turns to, it can but cling to what brings sorrow, unless it turns to you. Everything else is a vapor. Everything else brings up. Now these final two verses, verses 27 and 28, are kind of a summary statement of all that Asaph has concluded. If you want a couple of verses to memorize and capture the essence of this confession, these are it. He says, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the essence of the gospel. That those who are wicked, those who live a wicked life, are apart from God. They are far away from God. And that that is how all of us work. That is how all of us are, apart from Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought near. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. We are brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're brought near to God. We're brought into a relationship with God. We're brought close to God. We are given the life of God by faith in Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. And Asaph says, even though he started out this song thinking generally that God is good to Israel, God is good to all people, he's good to the pure in heart, when he comes to the end of his song, you know what he resolves? That the, the greatest good that there is is to be near to God. It's to be with God. It's to be in God. Yeah. Everyone else will perish. All of us have to make that progression in our faith. All of us have to take that leap spiritually. We have to make sure that we don't view our relationship with God as a function of visiting church or just doing good things. But we have to view our relationship with God and God's goodness not as, again, not as a function of how well we do in life or whether or not God is blessing us, but in relation to the fact that he is with us. 
and in Christ he is in us, and that he will never leave us or forsake us. St. Augustine, again, we started out with this quote. He said, you stir us so that praising you may bring us joy, because you have made us and drawn us to yourself, and our heart will find no rest till it finds rest in you. Father, help us to see that you are good and you do good by the grace of Christ. Help us to do good in the love of Christ. When we fail, help us to fall upon the cross and the resurrection of Christ as our remedy, as our soul's redemption. As we gather together with one another, help us to be willing to, con willing to confess our shortcomings and to remind each other of the truths of Christ so that we might be strengthened and encouraged. In our own hearts, help us to treasure the person of Christ as our greatest good. Help us to find our rest in Him and Him alone. Help us to proclaim this truth to others so that they might find their rest in Him and in Him alone. And help us to do this for your glory. In His name.